welcome to the Cabramatta Vineyard Church podcast. We are a missional community in southwestern Sydney that desires to be a preview community of God's generous rule and reign. For more information, check out cabramattavineyard.org.au. So the last time we looked at Revelation together, we took more of an overview <coughs> and had a look at the structure of the whole book. So if you remember that, you'll know that when we get to chapter 6, we're entering into the main or the longest section of the book of Revelation, which goes from chapter 6 through to chapter 20. And the focus is on God's judgment. And a lot of people think that that's what the book of Revelation is about. The book of Revelation is about the angry God coming to uh, get even with everyone who's been naughty. Um, if that's what you think, you really should read the text a little more carefully. Because, number one, that's not what God's judgment looks like. God's judgment is an expression of his righteousness. His wrath is his opposition to everything that's evil. Um, God doesn't get angry. His wrath is a character trait that is opposed to uh, everything that's messed up the beautiful world that he made. So through this central section, there are three lots of seven things that happen. So we have seven seals, in chapter 6. Now that's not the aquatic mammal. Uh, that's the wax thing that they used to, uh, in, in the days before books, stuff was written on scrolls. And so you'd have a long paper or vellum scroll that was rolled up. And then they'd seal it with some hot wax. And whoever's uh, document it was would take their signet ring, their seal, that was their seal, it was the symbol of the household, and they press that into the hot wax and they know whether someone's broken open the document because they've broken the wax seal. Now you remember from uh, Revelation 4 and 5 that John was taken up into heaven and that's where he still is at the start of chapter 6. So he's standing in God's throne room and he's looking at the throne and he, was, he burst into tears when he realised that the throne that was in the right hand of the one sitting on the throne, there was no one worthy to open it. But then his attention was drawn to the lion of the tribe of Judah. But when he looked at the lion, what he saw was a, a lamb that had been slaughtered. And the lamb was worthy to open the scroll. And there's a bit of singing that goes on. Uh, making that point. So we're going to read today chapter 6 and 7, which is the beginning of the judgments. But as I said the last time, it's important for us to realise that this is not a sequence, seven things that happen, then another seven things that happen, then, an then another seven things that happen. So it's not that even, even the, well, we'll get to it when we get there. There's seven seals, then there's seven trumpets, and then there's seven bowls. And in between these groups of seven, there are a number of interludes where something happens that allows us to catch our breath. 
So John writes, Now I watched when the Lamb opened one of the seven seals, and I heard one of the four living creatures say, with a voice like thunder, Come. So John's standing in God's throne room. Remember, there's the four living creatures seated on thrones around the great throne. And then there's all these angels around about. And one of the four living creatures says, Come. And I looked and behold a white horse. And its rider had a bow with a crown was given to him. And he came out conquering and to conquer. Now, a lot of weird and wonderful stuff has been written about the book of Revelation. There are at least four different interpretive schemes that have been popular. And I don't think any of those four schemes actually gets it completely right. But in the one you've probably heard, there are some people who think that this first writer is Christ. This first writer is Jesus. Now, if you read the text, that's a ridiculous notion. The first horse, the rider on the white horse, is a parody of the rider on the white horse that we meet later in the book. This is a king pretending to be the one. The rider on the white horse is conquest. These are the four horses of the apocalypse. So the first four seals release the four horses of the the apocalypse. The white horse, the red horse, the black horse, and the pale horse. Have you heard of these things? Conquest, war, uh, death, and... Sorry, conquest, war, famine, and death. The pale horse is death. So this is not Jesus coming at the start. Uh, None of these horses are good things. These are up there with Tolkien's nine riders where where it comes to scary bad guys on horses. Um, These four horses of the apocalypse describe the way trouble often comes to the world. They describe the way in which trouble comes to nations. So it's happening today in Ukraine. Putin is flexing his muscle trying to bully boy up to Ukraine. Um, And so he's on the white horse. But following the white horse is the red horse, war. Given the right to take peace from the land, that's Ukraine. And in the Straits of Taiwan, China and the US are doing the same thing. And where they're barracking on the Americans, helping them with our freedom of passage, right? sending our aeroplanes and our ships to go through territory that China claims. Don't think that we're the good guys there. We're part of the problem. right? This is the white horse. This is conquest. This is the, the desire for expansion. This is not the free world standing up for freedom. This is America wanting to maintain their supremacy. Right? And we're a client kingdom bowing down to whatever America wants. Politically, that's not a good move for us for Australia. Do you think it would be good for us to go to war with China? <laughs> I think maybe we would do badly in that context. 
There'd be no war. Oh, it's all right, though. We've got nuclear submarines coming. Right in 40 years' time. The reason this is important for us as the church is because our primary allegiance is not to our nation state. Right? We live in a wonderful country that for the last 20 years has behaved really badly. Right? Our reputation has been shattered around yeah. the world. We used to be a world leader in a whole bunch of areas. But in a couple of the things that are really important to God, We've been going against where we should be going for more than a decade. Now, we've changed government, to my huge relief, but some of those policies haven't changed. Right? We're still planning to dig up lots of coal and gas and sell it overseas because we don't count those as our emissions. And we've still got lots of people in immigration detention, not because they did anything wrong, but because we want to look tough to the people in Sri Lanka and Pakistan and uh, people stuck in camps in Indonesia who are trying to get to Australia, we want to treat these people meanly. We're being unjust to people who just want a better life. Right? It was wonderful this week that the one Sri Lankan family got permanent residency. They got a visa. And that's fantastic. That's been a long, long battle. There's a whole bunch of people who are still imprisoned by us. The fact that we have a Labor government hasn't changed that. Our allegiance is not to our nation. Our allegiance is to our King, who is the Prince of Peace, who will bring justice. And so we need to line up with him, not with empire. Right? Our nation is part of an empire we are a client state to the American empire, which is now muscling up to the rising power, which is China. <clears throat> As Christians, our role is to line up with the true king, right? The one who conquers by dying. So let's go into chapter six. When he opened the second seal, I heard a second living creature say, Come, and out came another horse, bright red, and its rider was permitted to take peace from the earth, and that, so that people should slay one another, and he was given a great sword. And when he opened the third seal, I heard the third living creature say, Come, and behold, a black horse, and its rider had a pair of scales in his hands. That's those balances. Um, so you've got the chain and the little bits and you put the known massive weights on one side and whatever you're weighing on the other side and you balance them up. Um, symbol of judgment. Uh, and I heard what seemed to be a voice in the midst of the four living creatures saying, a quart of wheat for a denarius and three quarts of barley for a denarius. Now, in biblical times, a denarius was the, way, the day's pay for a labourer. Right, so we're probably talking in Australian terms, I don't know what a labourer gets, probably two fifty, three bucks. Depends on which, oh, actually, if they're on the north coast where there's a huge shortage of tradies, maybe they're getting five or six hundred bucks for a day's pay. But at any rate, 
this is a pretty ex expensive litre of wheat, right? A day's pay for our quarts about a litre. Um, or three litres of barley. This is talking about famine. And this is the way uh, conflict has unfolded throughout human history. These four horses come, but we shouldn't think that they come one at a time. They come together. Right, this is a bit of literature. It's probably better if we were to think of a symphony where there are four different themes. And as you listen, you can hear the different themes uh, wound together uh, and interacting over each other, because that's the way it happens. Conquest comes, right? Somebody wants some territory that belongs to someone else, or resources that belong to someone else, or they want to get even with something that happened seven centuries ago. Um, and then comes war, and with war comes famine. So there's, current, there's a famine coming to the world because Ukraine is one of the biggest grain producers in the world. And currently the Russians are blockading the Black Sea ports so the Ukraine uh, grain is sitting on silos on the docks and can't get out. There are thousands of people who will starve to death this northern summer and the winter that follows because they can't get access to the grain. War, famine, economic deprivation. Right, I don't know if you've noticed your gas bill lately. Right, it's gone. Right, now that's partly really stupid government policy, a failure of policy, in fact. We make lots of gas. We should be leaving it in the ground, but if we're going to get it out, we should get something as a country for it. And we shouldn't be paying export prices. Why do we? Because we were stupid, well, we had stupid leaders. But who voted those stupid leaders in? What's happening is that oil, gas and oil companies are gouging the market, not because they have to, but because they can. There's no law stopping them from that. But it's okay, they pay tax, don't they? Oh no, they don't pay any tax either. So here we have four huge multinational companies that are taking our resources, selling them, making billions of dollars of super profits, and as a country, we get nothing except sky-high gas prices. This is a consequence <coughs> of war. This is this cycle, these four horses unfolding, not just in one little area, but now in the day of globalization, it's, it's affecting the whole world. Right, so your gas bill, your electricity bill, which is directly related to gas prices, is a consequence of the third horse at work in the Australian market. Now what John is saying is that when God releases judgment, how does he do it? Well, if the world gives their allegiance to empire instead of to the true king, God's judgment comes in the form of consequences. God allows our allegiance to empire to release the natural consequences. John's view of judgment is exactly the same as Paul's in Romans 1. What's the punishment for sin? God gives us over to the consequences of our sin. 
and the punishment is more sin and more sin. Right? The way in which God brings judgment the first time is he takes his hands off and he allows us to get what we deserve. And when conquest comes, war and famine and economic collapse and death follow naturally. And not one at a time, but all together. This is a picture of how God releases judgment. When he opened the fifth seal, I saw under the altar the souls of those who had been slain for the word of God and for the witness they had borne. Okay, now if you're alert, you're probably thinking, altar? What altar? Nobody mentioned an altar before. Isn't John sitting in the throne room of God? So it turns out that God's throne room is actually a temple. And so here in the presence of God with the four elders and the big throne and the 24 elders on, elders on the little thrones and the, the four living creatures and all the angels around, it's a temple where God is at the centre and there's an altar because in the ancient world, altars were a key piece of furniture in a temple. And under the altar are the souls of those who've been killed for their testimony. The souls of Christians who have been faithful to the Lamb and it's cost them their lives. What's the point John is making? Remember, this is a prophecy that's delivered to seven churches that are facing persecution and seduction of the empire. That's the twin threats. Do I compromise and get an easy life by participating in the rituals and the practices of empire? Or do I resist and risk getting beaten up, thrown in prison, or even put to death? These are the people that John is writing to. And so this is meant to comfort them. What happens to those who get put to death? Here they are in God's presence, under the altar, in the throne room, in the presence of all of the weird worship beasts. So the slain cry out in a loud voice, O Sovereign Lord, holy and true. Only place in scripture where God is called holy and true. How long before you judge and avenge our blood on those who dwell on the earth? Right, the martyrs cry out to God, how long? Right, this is a cry that we've heard all the way through the Psalms and the prophets everywhere. When God's people are crying out to God, how long do we have to put up with this? Yeah. And finally the answer comes? A little more. Uh, sorry, a bit longer. <laughs> <laughs> but they're given white robes, which is a symbol of their triumph. They belong with the real king on the white horse. Right? These are the ones who've been redeemed and are now in God's presence. And they're told to rest a little longer until the full number of their fellow servants and their brothers and sisters should be complete, who were killed as they themselves had been killed. 
And then I opened, uh, when he opened the sixth seal, I looked and behold, there was a great earthquake. And the sun became black as sackcloth. The full moon became like blood. And the stars of the sky fell to earth as a fig tree sheds its winter fruit when shaken by a gale. The sky vanished like a scroll that is being rolled up, and every mountain and island was removed from its place. Then the kings of the earth, and the great ones, and the generals, and the rich and the powerful, and everyone, slave and free, hid themselves in the caves and among the rocks and the mountains, calling to the mountains and rocks, fall on us and hide us from the face of him who was sit who is seated on the throne and from the wrath of the lamb for the great day of their wrath has come and who can stand now if you're paying attention this sixth seal remember there's seven seals this is the seal of judgment this is a description of god's judgment god's final judgment falling on the earth and so as we go through the seven seals, the seven trumpets, the seven bowls, we will find out that it's always the sixth one that describes the final judgment. So the final judgment is actually not the end of the story. The focus of the revelation is not on judgment, it's on what comes next. Right? It's on the banquet of the king. It's on... Uh, God's redeemed people being drawn into his presence and coming into rest and celebration. That's number seven. Mm. So the powerful of the earth recognize God's judgment and rather than face the one who's sitting on the throne, what do they do? They hide. They run away and they hide and they call out to the mountains and the hills to collapse and kill them rather than face the wrath of the Lamb. That's an interesting phrase, isn't it? Never thought that a, ram, a lamb would be that scary. Mm -hmm. Even if they run into your shins with their head down. Yeah, I don't know. I used to help my family go sheep and... <laughs> Yeah, they're coming at you in one go. It's not fun. <laughs> that should remind us, though, that God's judgment is not like human vengeance. God brings judgment as the Lamb. Right? And how did his judgment come? What was God's judgment on sin and death? How was sin and death finally defeated? Cross. The Lamb gave up his life. Yeah. He refused to take the power that was putting him to death to himself. And that was what defeated it. Mm. This is Lamb power. And we're followers of the Lamb. Mm. Guess how we're meant to do battle? Hmm. Not. Should we be surprised that there's a bunch of martyrs under the throne? Because the way in which we follow the Lamb, the way in which we serve Jesus, is by refusing to resort to violence and to take up power over others. Mm -hmm. Our power comes through service, 
and suffering is the complete opposite of what the world thinks power is. Before we get to the seventh seal, something else happens, and this is chapter seven. Remember God's, uh, Paul, uh, what's his name, John, still sitting in the throne room, or standing in the throne room. After this I saw four angels standing at the four corners of the earth, holding back the four winds of the earth, that no wind might blow on the earth or sea or against any tree. Right, that last bit might seem a bit odd, but how do you know it's windy? Uh, you can tell because the trees are moving. Um, I think that's the significance of the tree. Then I saw another angel ascending from the rising sun, that is from the east, with the seal of the living God. Remember we talked about the king's signet ring? So this angel is bringing God's seal and he cries out and says, wait. He says, do not harm the earth or the sea or the trees until we have sealed the servants of our God on their foreheads. And I heard the number of the sealed, 144,000 sealed from every tribe of the sons of Israel. So you might be asking, okay, 144,000, who are these? Right, this is obviously all the Jehovah's Witnesses. I don't actually know what God will do with the Jehovah's Witnesses. Uh, they don't accept the divinity of Jesus. Fortunately, I'm not the one who has to decide. That's something that Jesus will do. They are deceived, uh, but very sincere. What will God do with them? Don't know. Interesting question. I don't have the answer. Now, what do we do with a list of the 12 tribes of Israel? Especially if you're a Bible nerd and you can compare John's list with the 18 other lists of the sons of uh, Israel or the tribes of Israel in the Old Testament. 18 lists. Right? End of Deuteronomy, uh, end of uh, Genesis. Uh, we get these lists of uh, the tribes and this list is not like anyone in the Old Testament. It's unique and a bit odd. Right? Why is Judah first, not Reuben? Reuben was the oldest, he should be listed first. Uh, why is Joseph there? In the 12 tribes, Joseph's two sons, Manasseh and Ephraim, are the two tribes that represent Joseph. And Levi's not there because Levi didn't get any land. Right? Levi, <clears throat> the tribe of Levi were the priests. So they didn't get land and they didn't go to war. And so the, the two sons or the tribes from the two sons of Joseph took Levi's place. And where's Dan? I'm not talking about Chairman Dan. I'm talking about the tribe of Dan. Um, not there. Levi's there. Oh, yeah, Levi's there. That's another question. Why is Levi there? Normally not listed. 
We don't really have answers to those questions. Um, the absence of Dan is probably due to the fact that at the time that John's writing, there is Jewish tradition that the place the Antichrist comes from will be the tribe of Dan. Um, the tribe of Dan somehow got lost, uh, and there's a whole lot of mythology around the lost tribe of Dan. Um, one of the founding myths of white supremacy is that the lost tribe of Dan found its way to England. So somehow this tribe of Jewish people were white people who settled in England. And so the reason England became the most prominent empire uh, in the 16th, 17th and 18th centuries is because this is the lost tribe of Dan. This is God's blessing on white people. So we spread our white supremacy around the world. Um, and yeah, that's a load of nonsense. <laughs> wow. We don't know what happened to the lost tribe of Dan, um, but certainly they are not the progenitors of the Ku Klux Klan. <laughs> It's unlikely that these 144,000 people are all Jehovah's Witnesses. And it's also unlikely that they're Jewish people. Yeah. Do the numbers actually mean the numbers, or are they just simple? No. Remember, we're in apocalyptic literature. So 12 tribes times 12 times 1,000, which is the number of completion. What John is saying is that this is the full number of God's people will be brought into his presence. God will save all of his people and bring them into his presence. And John doesn't see these 144. He hears the number and then he turns and he looks and instead of 144,000 people, he sees a great multitude that no one can count. There's going to be a whole lot more than 144,000 of God's people in heaven. And this great multitude is made from every nation, from all tribes and people and languages, standing before the throne of God and before the Lamb, clothed in white robes with palm branches in their hands. Now, as I said it, month or so ago, this is the church, right? This is meant to be a picture of what God's church is like here on earth as well as in heaven, right? Paul and I were talking at um, the break about the churches of Cabramatta. The last time I did a, a, a number, there were about 40 different churches in Cabramatta and almost all of them are mono-ethnic because which group is it easiest to gather people from? Yeah. Right, the people you know. But that's not God's picture of the church. God's picture of the church is this. It's a rainbow vision. I mean, a true rainbow, not the gay thing. It's all of the different types of people that God has made brought into his presence. So seven times in the Revelation, John describes God's people with four terms, but everyone's different. So sometimes it's 
tribe, people, language, nation. Sometimes it's nation, language. The order is different. And sometimes a couple of the words are different. But Revelation is full of sevens. This is the second time this list has appeared. It also appeared at chapter 5, verse 9. This is chapter 7, verse 9. There's another five coming. And it describes the people that God will save. And the scripture that John is conjuring up is Psalm 118, which is a, which is a plea for God to act. Right? Verse 27 of Psalm 118 ends with the cry, Lord, save us. This is the answer to Psalm 118. They cry out with a loud voice. The people of God are turned out to be a pretty noisy bunch. And so they all shout at the top of their voices, salvation belongs to our God who sits on the throne and to the Lamb. And all the angels were standing around the throne and the, all the elders and the four living creatures and they fell on their faces before the throne and worshipped God, saying, Amen, blessing and glory and wisdom and thanks, honour, glory, uh, honour, power and might. Uh, be to our God forever and ever. Amen. So here, after the sixth seal, after the judgment of God falls on the earth, and all of the people in power are trying to run away from God, we see that God's people are already gathered in his presence. In God's mind, we're already with him. Now in time, he's with us here, but in his mind... He sees us with him in his presence already. And that's the picture, that's the vision that John has given because this vision is meant to encourage the Christians in Asia who are about to go through a really rough time. These people, one of them, Antipas, has already died. There's a bunch more who are going to die. And John wants to assure them that even as they go through this time of tribulation, that they will be rescued by God. Then one of the elders addressed me saying, who are these clothed in white and from where have they come? And I said to him, sir, you know, in other words, I haven't got a clue. Are you going to tell me? And he says, these are those, sorry, I lost my place. These are the ones coming out of the great tribulation. They have washed their robes and made them white in the blood of the lamb. In other words, these are the people who get hammered in the great tribulation. Now that English phrase, great tribulation, unfortunately has got a checkered interpretive history so in dispensational theology or what you might call uh, premillennial um, theology the great tribulation is a seven-year period that immediately proceeds and climaxes in the battle of armageddon all right i want you to know that the great tribulation is now mm. and there will be no final battle mm, it's done there's only a defeat of evil. The armies might gather, but the guy on the white horse doesn't need our help. 
The Great Tribulation is the time of trouble that the church is about to experience. And it's also the time of trouble that the church around the world has experienced at different periods mm. throughout history. So John is mm. writing with a specific time of tribulation in mind, but it's not the last seven years. It's what's just about to come on the seven churches that he's writing to. They're about to have a really hard time and they're going to get roughed up and some of them are going to die. And John wants them to know, even if you're put to death in your time of tribulation, your ultimate fate is to be gathered into God's presence and clothed in a white robe. You belong to the elect. You belong to the ones that God will save. Now their robes have been made white in the love blood of the lamb, which is a rather gruesome metaphor. Um, if you've been in the church a while, you will have sung lots of songs about being washed in the blood of the lamb. I challenge you to find a Bible verse that says that that's what's, what happens. Right? There's actually nowhere in scripture that says that that's what's, what happened to us, um, but it's pretty popular in uh, Christian music. It's also not something that is particularly appealing to me. If I'm going to wash, I'm probably not going to choose lamb's blood. Uh, and also I'm thinking that if you put your white gown in blood... So, but this is a metaphor, alright? And so we don't want to press the metaphor too hard. Nor should we think that the things that we read, the symbols that we read in apocalyptic literature, are literal things that are going to happen. Almost nothing that we read about in Revelation, even the earthquakes and the sky rolling up like a, sky, uh, like a scroll and the stars falling from heaven, this is picture language that's talking about upheavals that happen in human history. Right? We shouldn't think that... Now, there might be a major earthquake. Right? There's supposed to be a big one coming to the west coast of... Uh, the North American con continent at some point. It's well overdue. It's probably going to happen. And when it does happen, that's going to be a bad time to be living in San Francisco or LA or San Diego or Portland or Vancouver. I lived in Vancouver for three years before it wasn't until I got home that I realised, oh, Vancouver's sitting on the edge of a massive earthquake. That might happen. But that's not necessarily the judgment of God. This is symbol language <coughs> saying that when God's when the end comes, everything gets upset. How do we describe that? How do we put that into language? We use the language of natural disaster. We use the language of conflict to describe um, what will happen when God disrupts human history and brings it to conclusion. Therefore they are before the throne of God and they serve him night, day and night in his temple. And he who sits on the throne will shelter them with his presence. This is the promise to the people about to face trouble. And today in parts of the world, mm. God's people 
are living under threat of this. There are places in the world where our brothers and sisters in Christ are facing death, are facing imprisonment, are facing beatings while we live a life of ease. We're very fortunate to live in the country where we are, but we shouldn't think that that means that our country is somehow more highly evolved. Um, A lot of our fellow citizens are going to end up rolled up into the final judgment because they never heard about Jesus, because we didn't tell them. Um, Our ease is a two-edged sword. Yeah, we live fairly comfortable lives, but it also means that we tend to take for granted or completely miss the urgency of the missional challenge. They shall no longer, sorry, they shall hunger no more, neither thirst any more, and the sun shall not strike them, nor any scorching heat. Write some Old Testament quotes that we won't go into. For the lamb in the midst of the throne will be their shepherd, and he will guide them to springs of living water. And so here John draws to a conclusion this picture of God's people in God's presence, echoing Psalm 23 and uh, Ezekiel 34, um, Isaiah 49 which talks about God leading his people beside springs of living water. God will wipe away every tear from their eyes. What should we take away from this? At a time when I've uh, stepped back from leadership um, and I'm reflecting quite a bit on what God's doing, what he might want to do. I'm reflecting on what God has put into us as a church. Which are, which are the bits of that that we need to take forward? Now this picture of Revelation 7 for me is the foundational picture. The, the first picture that God gave me. What kind of church does he want in Cabramal? He wants a church like this one. Not sure about the great multitude bit. (laughs) But every nation, all tribes, people and languages. (coughs) Where better to do that than in the southwest of Sydney? We have 170 nationalities living within two kilometres of us. (laughs) This is a good place to do church the way in which God sees it. I'm really pleased that we've got uh, you guys with us. Because you look different to the rest of us. (laughs) But here we are in the heart of Cabramatta. There's nobody from Southeast Asia. Does that seem right to you? Well, she's from the Philippines. We're from the Shire. So my question is probably one that I want you to go away with. How do we become a church? How do we recover 
that missional impulse where we become a community that reflects the diversity of our community. Right? We have a little bit of diversity, but we're still way too white. And that's quite remarkable in somewhere as diverse as Cabramatta. Now, we were better in the past. We used to have lots of diversity. How do we recover that? Right? This is not something that we do on our own. This is something as we cry out to God, how long, Lord, come save us. But we've already been saved. So this cry for the salvation of God to come is a cry that we're meant to take to our community. Now, I believe that uh, mission is tied to justice. That mission is not just the good news that Jesus saves us from our sin, but Jesus will bring justice on the earth. And so we need to participate in the great movements of our time, which are about earth care, action on climate change, uh, loss of uh, ecological diversity, mistreatment of asylum seekers and refugees, mistreatment of our indigenous people. The mission of the church should engage with those things because guess where the young people of our country are? What do they think is important? They're caught up in these issues and we want to tell them that they're sinners. <laughs> now it's true that they're sinners, but that's not going to win their hearts. What's going to win their hearts is the fact that Jesus is the true king and he will bring justice on the earth and his justice comes with the love of God. Praise God. That could launch me off in a different direction than I don't want to go there today. What I'd like us to do today as we go uh, forth is just to pause and pray and ask God where are the nations God? Or maybe a better question how do we find them? How do we engage? <coughs> I have a hunch that God is actually on the move again in our city and that there are some exciting opportunities coming it would be good for us to place ourselves so that we can take those opportunities mm -hmm. there have been three moves of the Holy Spirit in my lifetime I missed the first two quite keen not to miss the next one Let's pray. Father God, we thank you that you know the answers to all of these questions. Mm. That you're not sitting on your throne, wringing your hands in worry, wondering what am I going to do with the humans? <laughs> you're not sitting up there thinking, 
Oh, what am I going to do with that bunch of people at Caramel? That you have plans and strategies for the people of our city. And that your spirit yearns, groans for the people of Australia and for other nations. Holy Spirit, we invite you to come and move in us and on us and around us. And we pray for another move, for another wave of your presence to come and save our country. Because we've tried to do things our own way. And it's all ended in tears. Come on, Jesus. So let's just take a moment to pray at our tables together. Mm-hmm. And, and that question is, um, who is my neighbour? Mm-hmm. 